But what they're saying is we have to allow that there is uh, there are multiple things going on. We can't just say ancient of days equals God the Father. We can't do that. Or son of man equals Jesus. There's something more complex going on here. Okay. Let's flip to the back. As I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, uh, the time of the composition of Daniel is something that has been debated all the way back to the third century uh, because it's, it's not quite a cohesive book, right? As I said before, we get through to seven and we're like, is, am I still, did I pick up the wrong thing off the shelf? What, what's going on here? There is a sense that uh, something new has happened. Someone new, maybe writing, something has changed. And some people suggest that the first six chapters of Daniel referring to the Babylonian exile, uh, may have very well been written in that era. But then the next six chapters have, uh, have so many connections with a particular time and a particular place that it's most likely that that may have been composed at a later time. Uh, and uh, that quote at the top of the back page, uh, this uh, comes from... Uh, Bill Arnold from his introduction to the Old Testament, where he says that Daniel 11, which we'll come to in a few weeks, is the best example of the apocalyptic principle of prophetic hindsight. The histories of the Persian Empire in Greece and the Seleucid Empire are foretold with detailed accuracy. And uh, by contact, the I think that should be contrast, uh, by contrast, the end of the rule of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, described in Daniel 11, is only vaguely predicted and without the benefit of historical hindsight. The transition from ex eventu to real predictive prophecy can be traced in Daniel 11 to this portrait of Antiochus. So what is going on here? What is going on is these, these scholars are trying to say, when was this book written? Why isn't it part of the prophets? What And... and there may be some actual reference here. There may be some codes to be decoded. Um, and the, the scholars are almost all in agreement that there is a date for the second half of Daniel, about 164, 165 B.C. And um, that, that they're referring to this Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a villain. He was a bad guy. Imagine... The worst villain from, sure, let's just go to sci-fi back again. Uh, the worst villain you can imagine, that is Antiochus Epiphanes. He is uh, a persecutor of Jewish traditions. There's some associations with Hanukkah, the book of Maccabees. And so much of what Daniel is talking about lines up with what he was doing. And at some, But Daniel is talking about it as though it's prophecy, right? Something is happening, something is coming, but scholars say, it sounds like... It's way too detailed to be prophecy, right? Because prophecy, if, if it's too detailed, someone's going to try to fulfill it, right? So if I give someone's name and, and I say in 300 years, uh, Jordan will do X, Y, and Z, well, in 300 years, somebody named Jordan will try to fulfill that or something of that sort. So when it's too specific, it doesn't quite uh, make as much sense. It needs to be general so that God can speak into it, if it's prophetic prophecy. But uh, uh, prophecy that's ex eventu 
claims to be written beforehand, but actually is describing uh, something that's already happened. And that's not, it's not, we may think in our modern view that that's something that, that's like lying or, or uh, covering up the truth, but that's not quite the case. That was something accepted across the world, across literature of the time. But we have all these details, and then we move into a part that's detailed, but not true. Something happened in the prophecy and that, that didn't quite happen in the historical record. So there is a moving from ex eventu prophecy to real predictive prophecy. Okay. Now, yes. Mm -hmm. Great question. In the ancient, right, today, when you publish a book, it goes, there's cover to cover, and it gets printed on the printing press, and there it is, and nobody's going to add to it, maybe a foreword or, or an epilogue later on, but nobody's going to add to it. In the ancient days, when there were no printing, printing presses, um, people... People took from this and this and added and compiled and rolling texts, I've heard them called, uh, like Isaiah. Isaiah, many scholars say Isaiah 1 through 41, 43 through 54, 55 to, no, 50, 43 to 55 and 56 to 66 are all three different time periods, right? Daniel is in the same uh, uh, realm or same category as, as Isaiah in that they're uh, there are certain stories and traditions that were oral for maybe hundreds of years, and then they were written down. But maybe it was just chapters 1, 3, and 5, and then somebody else from a different school, well, well you're forgetting this story. Well, don't, don't just tell those stories. You're, you're forgetting these other stories that I heard from my grandmother all those years ago, and those weave together, and then somebody else comes back and says, we need to add this other stuff, and it's all part of one book. But again, it didn't come off a printing press. It, it was a scroll. It was an ancient tradition and being copied and copied. Perhaps at one time, Daniel's chapters 1 through 6 were just one book. And then 7 through 12 were a different book. But they were woven together. We don't know. Yep. Certainly. Yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's a sense that there are oral histories which, which trickle down into traditions, and sometimes those traditions change, right? I, I, I encourage you to go, go home, find three different family members who were somewhere 30 years ago at the same time, and then take them into a different room and say, what do you remember from that, one, that, that Christmas 30 years ago where Grandma spilled the punch bowl? How do you remember that happening? They're all going to tell slightly different stories. It's going to be the same story, but they're going to be slightly different. So once those come through tr oral tradition to written tradition, they're woven together, add the apocalyptic literature on thereafter, and you get Daniel. It's, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's the quick. That's the quick version. Okay, coming to Daniel chapter 7. Great question. Thank you, uh, Dr. Smith. So uh, the first half, as we said, takes place during the Babylonian exile. Um, but that second half was most likely composed during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, 
something else is going on here. We've, we've talked about Nebuchadnezzar. We've talked about Belshazzar. We've talked a little about Darius and Cyrus. Now here in chapter 7, we're not continuing on in time. We're going back. In chapter 7, we hear about uh, Belshazzar again. Then in chapter 9, we hear about Darius. And then in chapters 10, we hear, or chapter 10, we hear about Cyrus again. So there's not this sense of we're moving on chronologically. We move on, and then we go back, and then we move on. Does that make sense? So that's this chart here. You go straight through t- uh, chronologically, and then you loop back and, and go to the end. Uh, and then this chart here as well, chapters, uh, talks about which, which king and which ruler appears in which chapter. Okay. So now is the time. We've got about 10 minutes left to actually delve into the chapter here. I invite you to open up your Bibles here to Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to talk about these four beasts So we've got four beasts. Can someone just, uh, either from scripture or from my little summary here, can someone read about the first beast for us? Uh, Daniel said from second verse. Yeah, so uh, verse four. Verse, if you go for, uh, to verse four. Start at four. Yeah. The first was like a lion. And it had the wings of an angel. I watched until its wings were torn off. And it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given to it. Okay. And, there take a, take a pa- and pause right there. What, what translation do you have? Red letter. Oh, I like it. It's, it's got some interesting things. Okay, so you've got this. Lion, eagle, hybrid wings, wings, but then they're plucked off, made to stand on two feet. And my, the NRSV at least says uh, the beast was given a human mind. Yours says he was a human heart. Probably actually is his kidney or something like that, because they didn't think in quite the same uh, terms as we did. Um, and then does somebody want to read then about the second beast? This is starting in verse yep. five. And the mind of a man, oh, sorry. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Okay. Then. Uh, This is coming into the fourth beast. This is particularly the fourth beast here. How about somebody read the third beast so the, fo- the following verse, verse 6. After this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. Okay, so these are some mythological beasts, and if our purpose is to decode things, we might try to say, okay, wings might be this, and and heads might be this, but it kind of starts to break down pretty quickly because we're not sure exactly what's going on. Uh, Pam, I think you've been volunteered to read about the fourth beast. <laughs> Thanks. 
After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Okay, so I think... And it doesn't say lion, at least in NRSV. Does it in anyone else's say lion? I was trying to figure out what beast, what kind of beast it is. Just says beast. But leopard's number three. I don't, I don't know. Lion was the first, bear, leopard. Well, this artist here, uh, there's a leopard. Yeah, I don't know, something, maybe it's all, maybe it's all of them together. Um, but here are the ten horns. Yeah, artist rendition, right. I mean, this, is, this isn't biblical, biblical fact here, right? This is artist rendition. But you get these horns, and then did you, go, did you read all about the horns? No. Did you? While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. No, yeah, you should probably stop there. Um, so, uh, anyone want to decode this for me? No takers? None? Okay. We can see that this is some mysterious prophecy, probably not coded language. It's not like gematria, where each thing, or allegory, where each one thing refers to something else. But there is this sense that there are four beasts, and then here we get the judgment before the ancient one in the following verses. And uh, as Debbie made mention of last week, there's this sense that uh, there is a parallel with chapter 2. Remember that statue? Statue with the four different elements, right? Uh, and they are, each represent kingdoms. Well, here we have four other beasts, which may be representative of kingdoms. Uh, then over in verse 9, I'll read this one. Uh, it's... Uh, it's, it says, uh, as I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and, his ha and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. So, uh, and skipping down to 11, I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking, right? This image here has a little face. I don't know if you can see this face. Uh... As I watched, uh, the horn was speaking, and as I watched, the beast was put to death, and its body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. And for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So imagine we didn't have the book of Revelation and all that went with it, right? Left behind and all those post-apocalyptic movies of what, how do we understand Revelation. Imagine we didn't have any of that, and give this a fresh reading, and which is really impossible to do, quite frankly. But who was this Ancient of Days? Do we have any, do we have any idea who this is? At least in my, my book here, my Bible, it is capitalized. It looks just saying Scott. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> it, it sure is possible that it's God. And that's how many, many uh, people through traditionally have understood the Ancient of Days. 
uh, at least the, the translators of the NRSV think that it's some divine being, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, not sure, um, because they capitalize it, right? Um, they could have left it under, underline, or, uh, in lowercase, but they capitalize it, some divine being here. But we're just not quite sure, because that's not a phrase that we hear all that often. I want to skip on to uh, verse 13, because it says, uh, at least in the NRSV, as I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being. Now, that's a bad translation, and here's why. Sorry, I know you love the NRSV, the, the Bible that Jesus read right out of, right? Um, the NRSV is trying to be gender inclusive. What they see here is son of man, and they say, well, it's probably not just, just a son. It could be a daughter. We don't really know, so let's make this person genderless and call him or her a human being. What's problematic here is that when you do that, you lose all the references in the Gospels back to this verse, back to these verses talking about the Son of Man. Um, and the Son of Man ca came with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient One as was presented before him. Verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Whoa, who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus to me. But, and, and Christian interpreters have gone that route. But if you don't have Jesus yet, right? In the 200 years between, uh, between when this was probably written and when Jesus came to be crucified and resurrected and ascended and Christianity really blossomed, what were people thinking about this verse? They certainly weren't thinking about Jesus Christ. So how do we understand it? I'm not quite sure. We've got about two minutes, right? Is that right? Yeah. So um, it certainly could be Jesus, but uh, at least J.J. Collins says, when looking at Revelation 14.14, 14, where that one like a son of man is certainly not Jesus, but is more like an angel, that we may want to actually think that this son of man is an angel. Once again, coded language or mysterious prophecy, apocalyptic literature, not easy to figure out what's going on. The point is, though, I want to come back. Uh, I want to come back to the, a point I made a little while ago, and then I'll turn things back over to Debbie. Is that if we understand this apocalyptic literature being written, as Helholm said, uh, for a group in crisis, maybe this, maybe this is not supposed to be understood by us. Maybe it was understood by them. That, that God has got this. There are these beasts. There are some powers of darkness, some evil forces coming up, and they seem ferocious, right? The most ferocious animals you've got. Lion, leopard, tiger, bears, right? Everything. Uh, the most ferocious evil creatures and beasts maybe representing kings, kingdoms, rulers, but they pale in comparison to the ancient one, the son of man. They will be destroyed. They will be tamed. And we, the Jewish people, will prevail. So I think if there is a message to be had, if there is something to be understood in Daniel chapter 7, it is, and throughout the rest of the book, it is that God has got this, that 
that the powers of evil and darkness will not prevail, but that God, uh, God will. God will prevail, and we as a Jewish nation will come out on the other side. So, I'm going to turn things back over to Deb. Was that not the most amazing introduction? <laughs> Talk about whirlwind Ooh. in 35 minutes. I am awed, sir. Whoa. Okay. So, we've entered this zone, and I have to confess to you, my least favorite genre is sci-fi. <laughs> oh, no. However, um, I do again say, all we have to do is listen to the evening news, and we're in the book of Daniel. <laughs> I don't think we need sci-fi to get there. I don't know, Dave, do I read, share my footnote? So I, um, you know, I, I kind of go through different translations for different years, and I rotate them on this cycle. And the year of 2018 for me is today's New International Version. So here's the fun part. This is the footnote. It says, the Aramaic phrase um, means human being. The phrase son of man is retained as a form of address here because of its traditional associations. <laughs> I was uh, saying, ah, Dave, I'm so sorry. And then I read my footnote and I'm like, oh, well, we all stand corrected. Uh, <laughs> all right. Remember that we've talked about the fact that, you know, Daniel doesn't get to this point of crisis, of national and really international crisis, without having this long sustained practice. In reality, um, probably if we were going directly from the text, what we would be looking at is uh, intercessory prayer and, and that prayer of wanting to understand from God. But we save that for later. Um, because I wanted to look, as we enter into this, um, tipping into this second half of the book of Daniel, I wanted us to look at what is it that sustains Daniel and allows him in that final um, verse of the chapter to, to just kind of hold with God. Um, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled in my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So Daniel's had these visions, and what an opportunity to spread anxiety, don't you think? But Daniel has chosen not to do that, but rather to remain centered in God. So um, we've got a, a we, we're going to look at the practice as it's laid out in your study guide, but I also wanted to add to it, um, and I'm sorry, the copy's a little light, but I want you to look at these three circles. And in these three circles, I want you to think about um, what we've already discussed, uh, that there is that, that part of us that only God knows. Even we are not fully aware. And then there is that part of, oh, Jack likes it, that part of us um, that we're aware of, but others are not aware of. And then there is that public part to the world um, that we show everybody. Now, for those who want to look at this discussion of true self and false self, 
I have a book to recommend, because why not? Um, and it's by Robert Maholland, and it's called Invitation to a Journey. But in this moment, um, I want us to think about the fact that we need to nurture that truest part of ourself, our core identity um, that is placed in God, which in turn informs our character and our understanding of call and our engagement with community. And to get to that place of, of really nurturing the true self, we need to be um, intentional about how we come to God. So a piece of it that we see again and again with Daniel is that he lets go of his need for security and survival. That would be a piece of false self, wouldn't it? He lets go of his esteem, need for esteem and affection. I mean, think back to last week's discussion where it's like, look, King, I don't need the purple robe or the gold chain, but I'll tell you what it says. Um, and he lets go of his need for power and control. Ooh, wouldn't it be a little different if all of us practiced that letting go? It's been called the Bermuda Triangle of false self. Security and survival, esteem and affection, power and control. So centering prayer is a prayer of surrender. It is a prayer of letting go. But it isn't our attention that we give to God. It is our intention, note that intention, by which we put ourselves before God. And so the practice as it has emerged has actually been shaped around a word. Um, and you'll find that the word, at least in my practice, has changed in different seasons of my life. So there have been seasons where Abba, you know, breathing in, Abba, out, God, in, Abba, out, God, has been what has carried me into that deep place of silence. Um, there have been other seasons uh, in which I literally have just prayed, surrender. <laughs> God, help me to surrender to you. Um, other seasons where joy, your joy, you know, because Jesus has said, I have come that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In this season, um, I, in my inhale, I have um, really been dwelling with the concept of abiding in God, abide, and out of that abiding, serve, abide, serve. Um, what I want to say is that the word isn't a magical word. It is a word that takes on um, a holiness as we enter into a deeper and deeper and deeper relationship with God. So, you know, this isn't some magical thing um, like uh, some have looked at numerology to be. It, isn't it fascinating, though? It is rather um, whatever the means becomes for us to be intentional about dwelling for a period of 15 to 20 minutes, and I would tell you that extra five makes all the difference in the world. Oh, shoot, I wanted to take us into five today. Um, but uh, maybe we'll begin next week with that. Um, so, and then out of that, we just allow God to touch us, to touch that innermost piece of us. You will find that sometimes you are reduced to tears. Other times there's a deep joy that will well up within you. Other times, like Daniel, you just surrender 
you know, I don't understand this, but I'm going to hold this to myself because I don't think it's going to help anybody else for me to share these visions that I've had. So in this coming week, I want to invite you at least one day to allocate 20 minutes. Set your phone alarm for 20 minutes. Choose a word. Do not beat up with you on yourself when you get distracted. Just simply say, okay, I got distracted again, and go back to the word. And then let yourself dwell in silence. I'm looking at the clock. Any questions before you enter into the practice? And the next week, we're going to begin with the practice, and we'll begin with some time of silence and go then into uh, chapter 8 from there. Does that make sense? I guess I'm teaching and you're practicing next week. We'll figure this out. We know it. Any questions? Yes. Oh, yeah, it's a beautiful. Well, there's several apps, actually. Which one do you use? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Check it out with your smartphones. Anything else? Then I'm going to ask our pastor to pray us out. Let's pray. Gracious God, once again, you have uh, used members of our community to bless us uh, and to inform us and to challenge us. We thank you and praise you for that challenge. But now we move from this place uh, into a place of worship or back out into the world, places where your spirit will lead us continue to lead us. So bless us to your spirit's guidance here now uh, and throughout this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.